repeat the things we did at first, or the Lord will remove that candlestick. It is revival or removal. And this is the theme that I'd like to address over the next couple of days with you. Uh, We're going to be scattered a little bit this morning in the Word, but I would just like to address first and foremost here with you three areas over the next few days, pardon me, four areas, two of which we will cover this morning. What is the background of revival and what is the burden of revival? It is hard to imagine in a generation like this, that, and especially in America, that we even need to speak of revival in the church in America. Over the last 20 or 30 years, we have seen such large growths in virtually every denomination. Radio and television ministries have gone right through the, the roof in some respects. Even we can pack out attendance halls and concert halls for people to attend and to hear the gospel through music. To be encouraged, exhorted, and edified in their walk with Christ. But yet, with so much going on in this country, we are dead spiritually. For the most part, in America, we have left our first love. We've forgotten the height from which we have fallen. And here today, the Gallup poll recently, per Chuck Colson's new book, Against the Night, has done a recent survey where he shows that 81% of the people in this country espouse some born-again Christian experience. 81%. That's close to 200 million people. I don't buy that statistic for a minute. If there's that much light in this country, ladies and gentlemen, why is everything becoming so dark? If there's that much salt in the earth, why is everything losing its savor? The problem with this world is not the world. The problem with this world, as Hendricks says, are Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito. We're the problem. Never before has there been so much influence and talk of religion with so little impact. The study went on to show, the Gallup showed that 81% also, those people, the exact same percentage, showed that these people were not coming to Christ according to to the gospel of Jesus, according to the word of God. They were coming on their own terms. They were coming as Saul wanted to come on his own terms. They were coming. And so people day today don't look at an aspect of having to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow him, to love him more than your father or mother, to love him more than you even love your own flesh, to give all that you are for all that he is. They come simply rearranging their prejudices not experiencing true regeneration. But revival is not for those outside the church. Revival is for a church that has fallen asleep in itself. Revival, there's a Hebrew term, and John, excuse me for my pronunciation of this, ka-ya, uh, I think, is the, is the correct term. It's maybe not the correct pronunciation. It's mentioned seven times in the Old Testament. This term revive, it's first mentioned in Psalm 85, verse 6. Wilt thou not thyself revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Psalm 138, verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me, 
Thou wilt stretch forth thy hand against thy wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. Nehemiah 4.2, what are these feeble Jews doing? This is during the time where Nehemiah was trying to build the wall, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And here Sambalot had, had taken cause against him in a mockery kind of tone, saying, can they offer sacrifices? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Isaiah 57.15, for thus says... Our high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with a contrite and lowly heart in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Hosea 6, 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has turned to us, but he will heal. He has torn us. Pardon me, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he shall bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live for him. And last but not least, in that wonderful priestly prayer of Habakkuk 3.2, Lord, I have heard the report about thee and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. This, this Hebrew term means to keep alive or to give life or to restore or to be made whole, to be quickened. In Psalm 85, 6, revive us again to restore. In Psalm 138, 7, to keep alive that I may stretch thy hand against the enemies. Nehemiah 4, 2, to revive the stones, to make whole again that wall of Jerusalem. Isaiah 57, 57 15, to give life. Hosea 6, 1 and 2, to live, for he will revive us after two days. He will rise us up again on the third day that we may live for him. And Habakkuk 3, 2, to quicken, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of thy years. Pardon me for throwing this down here. Fanning the flame, that rekindling of what was yet gone as a burning ember in our lives. But what is Revival. I've defined revival as a sovereign act of a holy God where He quickens His church to a no-compromise life of obedience to Him. One more time. Revival is a sovereign act of a holy God where He quickens His church to a non-compromised life of obedience to Him. I'd like to recommend a few books to you as we, as we go through this uh, talk a revival a little bit. This is one of them. Lord, Open the Heavens, A Heart Cry for Revival by Dr. Stephen Olford. It was written in 1962, but it is as fresh as the day as it was written. And he gives here in his introduction a few comments by several uh, leading uh, people from past days on their definition of revival. And this is interesting. Listen to some of them. Charles Finney defined revival as nothing less than a fresh return of obedience to God. Joseph Kemp addressed the, the Baptist Union of New Zealand, says revival means the reanimating of that which is already living but in a state of declension, a reviving of life. G.J. Morgan says it is God manifesting himself through human life, his redeeming power bursting forth in fruits of righteousness and holiness in the constitution of his church. Arthur Wallace, in his book, In the Day of the Power, says this, Revival is divine intervention in the normal course of spiritual things. It is God revealing himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power. It is such a manifest working of God that human personalities are overshadowed and human programs are abandoned. It is a man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. It is the Lord barely 
pardon me, the Lord making bare His holy arm and working in extraordinary power on saint and on sinner. J. Edwin Orr, that wonderful theologian, writes this, The best definition of revival is the phrase taken out of Acts 3.19, Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. These are a few great definitions for revival. A time of refreshing, a time of restoration, a time of renewal, a time of fresh return in obedience to Christ, a time where God under His sovereignty acts, His sovereign acts returns us to complete obedience in Him. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says this, The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2.11. That is what he defines revival as. Is only the Lord receiving the glory for what we have done. Only the Lord receiving credit for what we have done. As we know, Nebuchadnezzar tried to rob of that glory. He stood over Babylon and said, Look at the Babylon that I have built by my power, by my strength. And he took on the form of, uh, of this wild man immediately for seven years until he learned that God is able to humble those who are prideful. That is a little bit of the background of revival, the great Welsh revival that occurred, pardon me, in, in around the turn of the century in 1904-1905. It was an amazing time of revival. They, they, they said in the great Welsh revival that the mules in the caverns where they used to mine and, and the judges and so forth in the taverns, the mules would not work because they were not being sworn at. <laughs> the judges would wear white gloves because there was no guilt. There was nobody to try. People were living rightly before the Lord. The taverns closed down, not because people did a sit-in in front of the tavern and picketed it and said, we're going to take this over, where the church today even, in a sense, has, be, has tried to become the third arm of the political process. But they, have, but they were literally closed down, not because they were speaking against the tavern, but because they were boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they were living righteously for the Lord. And this is what revival is. That is the little bit of a, just a glimpse, because uh, of time this morning, of the background of revival. But what is the burden for revival? The burden for revival can be summed up in one word, and that is prayer. I understand you're having an all-night prayer meeting tonight. Is that right, Ken? Starting at 1 o'clock in the morning. Are some of you planning on being there? Good. I'm glad we're talking about this this morning. <laughs> can we wrestle in prayer for the Lord? One o'clock it'll start. They want to go until dawn. Are we willing to be on our knees before a holy God? They called James the camel need one because of his hours spent in prayer. When they buried him, they noticed that he had thick calluses on his knees for his hours that he spent in prayer. Are we willing to be men and women of prayer to have a burden for revival? To have a burden to fan the flame again for our Lord. A few verses on prayer. Luke 18.1, Jesus told us men ought always to pray and not to faint. And ladies and gentlemen, the inference is if we are not praying, we are fainting. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Pray without a break. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Mark 1.35, Jesus arose before the, the, the dawn became and He went to a lonely place and there prayed by Himself a great while before the morning came. Luke 6.12, Jesus prays all night, then chooses the twelve. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And Philippians 3, 
Philippians 1, 3 and 4, I thank God in my remembrance of you, always offering prayers with joy in my heart, every prayer for all of you. Prayer keeps us from fainting. Prayer keeps us always in an act of consistency with the Lord. Prayer is, is part of that weaponry in the body of Christ. Prayer is how we make our decisions. Prayer is our devotion to God, our complete surrender. And it's how we thank God as well as pray for others to encourage them. But there are four aspects of prayer that I just want to briefly touch on this morning. Number one, it's hard to pray, isn't it? It is hard to pray. There's a cost to, to praying, but it is hard for us to pray. Hard for us to come to prayer. I read recently that a statistic of pastors in America say that the average pastor prays less than three minutes a day. The average Christian prays less than 90 seconds a day. And usually if you split up that 90 seconds, it's 30 seconds before each meal. That's how much we are dedicated on our knees before our Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, as Stephen Olford once said, we do not march with the banners and the flags and the things of this world. The cross always weighs higher than the flag. But the church of Jesus Christ marches on its knees. Are you willing to be men and women of prayer? It begins in the privacy of your prayer closet. It begins with you on your knees. Three minutes a day for the average minister, 90 seconds a day for the average believer in America. We need people of prayer. But there is a cost to pray. It is hard to pray. We see this really in four examples. Job was tested. At the end of Job 1, we, we realize he's been tested. He has lost so many of his things, his earthly goods and possessions that he has hung on to. In Job 2, he is strict with a disease and boils. At the end of Job 1, though, it says he blessed the Lord and was not bitter. He did not blame God in all of this testing. There was a thankfulness even in his prayer, an endurance in his prayer, even through trial. There was a costliness to that, but he thanked God anyway. There was a hardness to that. Two, in Nehemiah, in his rebuilding, in Nehemiah 1, in his rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, he fasted and prayed and wept, it says, for three months, almost three months' time, before he went to the king to ask him for the goods to pray. He was prime minister of the, at that point in time, and it was, it was a punishable crime by death to show sadness in the face of the king. And here by himself, in his prayer closet, he prayed. It was a hardness to pray, but he wept. He felt a burden for that prayer, for his own homeland, for the pulling down of that wall, not because he wanted the wall to be rebuilt, but because it showed a disgrace to our Lord. Daniel, there was a cause for Daniel praying in this righteous young man, in this holy man's life. He was told not to pray, to answer to the king of that day and to honor him with his prayers. But he continued on praying three times a day to his holy God. And it was all, he was going to be executed for that. They threw him, as you know the story very well, in the lion's den. And this was for prayer. There was a cost to his prayer life. And the Lord delivered him out of that den. And last but not least, we only are reminded of our Lord and the, the hardness of that prayer. Not only the disciples fell asleep twice as, they were, as Jesus was praying. Once with a, with a few disciples around him at the transfiguration, they fell asleep, if you can believe this. Secondly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying as it were, sweating, great, great drops of blood, agony in prayer. And here the disciples fell asleep, could not even stay awake for one hour. There's a hardness to prayer. There's a hard life for prayer. It costs us much, and it may rob you some sleep at one o'clock in the morning. There's a hardness for prayer. Secondly, though, there is a humility in prayer. 
a very common verse to us as we talk about revival. 2 Corinthians 7.14 If my people who are called by my name shall what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. There is a humility in prayer. Psalm 86 verse 1 Bow down thy ear, O Lord, and hear me. For I am poor and needy. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. In verse 10 of that same chapter, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. There is a humility in prayer. There is a prayer that we must come emptied of ourselves to our Lord. I remember a few years ago, this was just a month before Keith Green went home to be with the Lord. And I'd been down to see him at his, at his work down there in Texas. And I was doing a concert in Denver, Colorado. And when I came out of the concert that night, three gentlemen with guns came up to me and said, give us all your money or we're going to blow your blankety-blank head off. Now, I don't know why it is that I attract these kinds of people, <laughs> but I do. And here, what happened was, was they pulled out their guns and, like any good Christian musician, I only had $5 on me. And I gave them the $5. They were very unhappy with a love offering uh, that they took that, that evening from me. And they proceeded to rough me up for a good 20 minutes. And they cut me bad. I had to go to the hospital and I had stitches all along the inside of my mouth here. And I got back to the hotel and I called Keith on the phone and I said, Keith, how you doing? I could barely talk. And he says, Steve, what's wrong? And I said, I got beat up last night after a concert. He goes, brother, that's fantastic. Did you have a chance to witness to anybody? You know, and I said, no, Keith, I'm sorry. It just didn't occur to me at the time, you know. And he said, well, listen, I don't have time to feel sorry for you. And he hung up the phone. So I called my mom. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, Mom, hi, this is your number two son. How are you doing? <laughs> and she says, you don't sound so good. I said, well, I got beat up last night after a concert. She says, did God protect you? I said, oh, it could have been a lot worse than it already was. And she says, well, that's great. I'm glad the Lord protected you. She goes, I'm so glad you called. I've had a rough week. I need to talk to somebody about it. And I said, you know, Mom, not now. I just don't want to do this, you know. And she says, you want me to feel bad for you? You want me to feel sorry for you? Just give you a little sympathy. And I said, well, I think that would be in order to some degree, you know. And she says, Steve, do you have your shirt off? And I said, yeah. She says, how many stripes do you have on your back? I said, none. She goes, how many times have you been lost at sea? I said, never. She goes, how many times have you been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel? I said, never. She goes, how many times have people picked up stones and tried to stone you and throw you out of jail for being faithful to the Lord? And I'm getting the life of Paul back at me. And I said, never. And she says, well, then will you quit your belly aching and get on serving the Lord? This is my mom talking. You know? I said, mom, what's the matter? You just get off the phone with Keith or something or what? You know, I just... <laughs> I didn't know. And she says, well, anyway, I, besides, I prayed for this to happen. I said, you prayed for this to happen? What kind of a sick mother are you? She says, Steve, you don't learn anything through your successes. You learn it all through your trials. And she said, I prayed that God would bless, break you before He would bless you. I prayed that He would crush you before He would crown you. And I prayed that you would know the reality of Calvary in your life before you ever desire to see the outpouring of Pentecost. Brokenness. Humility. And I tell you, the Lord had to get me on my back to get me on my knees. I'm a stubborn person. They say rocks take up more space. I had a lot to learn. 
David is probably the quintessential definition of this. If you recall, he looked into another man's jacuzzi one too many times and got into trouble. And he comes back to the Lord after a year of breaking and he says this. And that's why, gentlemen, by the way, when you get married, your eyes get married too. Keep them on your own wife. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings, but what? Humility. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Brokenness. Humility. Myrrh is a perfume that comes in rock form. And as it is broken and crushed, the fragrance is emitted from the myrrh. And it's the same thing with us as believers, as we are broken, as we are brought humble, as we are brought low in the sight of our God. It is a sweet aroma to our holy Lord. Gideon smashed the 300 pitchers to defeat the Midianites, and they ended up killing each other. Brokenness. Probably the best definition of this brokenness or this humbleness is found in Luke chapter 18. This is in verses 19, pardon me, 9 through 14. And he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Humility in prayer. We've kind of come to the limit of our time here this morning, but I would just like to mention that there are two, two other things. Hunger in prayer, and there must be a holiness in prayer. There's a hardness to pray. We must come to our Lord with humility for that prayer. There is also a hunger to pray. If you want to look up these verses here, I'd be glad to give them to you. Hosea 10:12, break up the fallow ground. James 5:16 and 17, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That earnestness in prayer. Luke 11:9, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. That hunger, that fervency in prayer. And in 1 Kings 18:41 to 46, this is the, the work of Elijah as he prayed and he could command heaven to shut heaven, he could command it to rain for, after three and a half years of drought. And last but not least is the holiness in prayer. Romans 8:26 to 27, there's a groaning, there's that intercessory prayer that comes out of a holy life. 1 Timothy 2.8, men should pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Psalm 24.3 and 4, he who has cleansed his hands and a pure heart can enter into the mount of the Lord. Leviticus 19.2, be holy for I am holy. Hebrews 12.14, without holiness no one shall see God. Psalm 29.2, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 66.18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I'm sorry to be lengthy this morning, but... Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to be with you this week here. And uh, we're staying over here at the little guest house. If any would like to come by and say hi. If Max is sleeping, we'll, we'll uh, 
take five on that, but if you'd like to come by and say hi, my wife and I would be most pleasure to, to welcome you and, and to get to know some of you. This is a real delight to be here with you this week. Remember, there's a hardness to pray that we must come before our Lord with humility. Do you have a hunger to pour yourself out to the Lord? Are you holy in your walk before Him? This is our attitude of prayer as we come before Him. Can we bow together as we close in prayer? And as in Jeremiah 2.13, we have not only forsaken the Lord, but we have substituted Him with broken cisterns that hold no water at all. We've tried to replace the love for God for all kinds of love, temporal as they may be, but loves that only last for a season. May we be as Moses who abandoned even the riches of Egypt for, forever to endure hardship with the people of God for the Lord. May we come to realize that the sweetest trial to the Christian is, is sweeter, is greater, more pleasurable than the most pleasurable things that this world has to offer. Uh, Friday it was my first experience in chapel with you and I was trying to cram two pounds of bologna in a one pound bag. And I ran a little long, and this morning that will not happen. But I just wanted to just give you a 60-second, maybe 120, if you grant me the, the leeway, of what we talked about Friday. First of all, there's a burden for revival, and that is prayer. Our hearts united to our Lord, coming to Him. We realize that, number one, it's hard to pray. It's hard to pray not only because our schedules and our times and so forth get in the way of our prayers. And we often see the day crowded out. At the end of another day, we do best only to say, Lord, forgive me. May tomorrow I spend more time with you. And not only because it's hard to pray because of our, our time, may we redeem the time, but it's hard to pray because we have to shut the door. And no man sees us where we pray. As Spurgeon said, the office of preaching is only open to a few, but the office of prayer is open to every Christian. But we must shut the door where only God can see. Not as the Pharisees on the street corners praying so that people would flatter themselves. But that we would shut the door. It's hard to pray. Number two, there must be humility in our prayer. We must come with a broken heart. As David, after his sin, prayed in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices that God has not despised in is a broken heart and a broken and contrite spirit. These are the offerings our Lord desires. Brokenness. Humility. There also must be a hunger in our praying. James 5, 16, 17, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And Elijah was a man like us, subject to like passions as we are. He was an ordinary man, but yet he was an obedient man. And when he prayed, there was a hunger, there was an, a fervency, an earnestness in his prayer so that it, it, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, he called on God and he sent his servant out to look to see if clouds were forming in the sky. It was a beautiful cloudless sky. And here, just a little cloud, as, the, as you know the story, in the shape of a hand appeared, and he kept sending his servant back seven times until it was literally pouring buckets from heaven. There must be that hunger, a persistence, almost an agony in prayers. We're told in Romans 8, 26 and 27, that words almost can't express this agonizing that the Spirit prays through us in prayer. And last but not least, there must be holiness in our prayers. Be ye holy, for I am holy. First Timothy 2. I wish that men would lift up holy hands everywhere. Who shall ascend into the mountain of the Lord? Psalm 24, those with clean hands and a pure heart. And so as it's hard to pray with humility in our prayers and a hunger for praying and with holiness in our prayer, this is the burden for prayer. 
But with so many people praying many times in our country and with all night prayer meetings as we had uh, here, and I have to confess to you, I slept through my alarm. Uh, I had it set for quarter to one and I slept through, so my apologies <laughs> to you. I'm like one of the disciples who would fall asleep. I, I'm like Peter. I'll put both of my feet in my mouth at any opportunity. So, But here we need to have people of prayer. But with all of our praying and with all of our activities and even with all of our programs, we have crowded churches, but very little spirituality. I was told today that of a friend, I had a devotional time with Sparrow Records this morning at 8 o'clock. And I'm not used to seeing the sun rise. It was a unique experience for me <laughs> this morning. But as I was talking to one of the people over there, they're going to start to work on creating a national uh, hotline for abused children. And I was told by them that, that on recent surveys of people and of abused children in particular under the age of 12 years of, 12 years of age, and I know abuse happens at all age, that they have shown that 20% of all abuse to children is done by elders, deacons, and pastors within the church. That should break our hearts. Judgment does begin with the house of God and the place where people come to find hope and restoration and repentance from their sin, they are finding the very thing that they're trying to run away from in the world. We need to be different people, don't we? We need to be people that are committed more to Christ. So anyway, this morning, I wanted to talk to you. Not, we've talked about the burden of revival, but this morning is on the barriers of revival, to revival. And there's three passages I would like for you to turn with me in. These are all found in the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 3. Jeremiah here lays out a wonderful blueprint for revival. Also understand, revival is not something that we can artificially conjure up, is it? Revival is the sovereign act of the freedom of a holy God to bestow that upon the people of God. But these are barriers that would prohibit that from coming. Chapter 11, verse 3, And say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant. When you see the word cursed, you could substitute for it the word barren or empty. It's a wasteland. It's dry, unproductive. Which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I commanded you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God in order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then I answered and said, Amen, O Lord. The first area that I'd like to address to you this morning is barren is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. Barren is the man who disobeys the word of God. Disobedience. I think our whole Christian experience, our whole Christian life stems or falls on the area of obedience. As Martin Lord Jones has once said, obedience, we are not ever going to be t judged by how much we know of the truth. We will be judged by what we have done with what we know of the truth. This is a very important distinction. To hear the word of God but not to be a doer is not to hear at all. We need obedience in our lives as the people of God. This is no better demonstrated as an example of this in the Old Testament than in 1 Samuel, where Saul was given the command to destroy Agag the king and the Amalekites. And here he 
as you as you know the story, he turned from following the Lord. And when it came time to destroy the king, he spared the king and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the most precious of all the jewels. And when confronted by Saul uh, with this tragedy where he disobeyed the Lord, he says that here it is. Uh, in verse 21, 1 Samuel 15, 21, he did not take account for his own responsibility for his own sin. But he told, he told uh, Samuel, he says, the people took some of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen. The choices of them was devoted to destruction. Man, isn't that commonplace for us? When we disobey the Lord, we are quick to blame somebody else. Maybe even blame God, God forbid. And here, the, the end result of Saul's disobedience, that he was denied his kingdom and his king over Israel. And the Lord gives us these wonderful verses on disobedience to the word of God. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, as is the sin of divination or witchcraft, and insubordination, as is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you. Powerful truths for today. To think that worshiping demons is synonymous with rebellion against the holy God. Disobedience to the word of God. Barren is the man who disobeys the words of his covenant. Secondly, in Jeremiah 17, not only is there disobedience to the word of God, but a distrusting of the will of God. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man, or barren is the man, who trusts in mankind, and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see prosperity when it comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor to cease to yield fruit. Man, what a wonderful contrast here of two types of people. You trust in the Lord and you will grow in your life. You will be like a tree planted by the stream, strong, fervent in your love for him. But barren is the man who makes flesh his arm. Because I travel a lot, we had a chance to do uh, about 130 concerts last year, close to 500,000 miles of traveling. And here, when I was in one of the airports in St. Louis, uh, this huge man comes up to me and orders six hot dogs. And I looked up and it was Hulk Hogan. You know the championship wrestler guy? He, he's huge. He's six foot eight, six foot nine, 320 pounds. And I said, what are you doing? And he says, I'm having a snack before I have lunch. Six hot dogs. I couldn't believe this guy. And the strength of this, this man, his arms were the size of most of our thighs, you know. He, he was huge. And I thought of a man that could trust in his physical strength is the Hulkster. <laughs> you know? Is this man who could body slam a 747 if he had to, you know? In physical strength, and I, and I looked at myself and I went, I got some work to do, <laughs> you know? As I was telling Mark yesterday at church, what, what I, I played basketball for three years in high school, and what once was up here is, is gone down here, and I'm trying to get it off. But, but I want you to know I've lost 16 pounds in the last eight weeks. So I'm trying. And so if you offer me a Diet Coke, I'd love to take it, but water is my 
my thing right now. And I never thought what I would eat what a rabbit eats, but that's what I'm living on. It's a wonderful thing. But barren is the man that puts his trust in man. Man, isn't this the, 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 really the dictate of our age? Revelation 3, we have need of nothing. We are content with ourselves. We think we have gold and silver and fine linen, and in reality we're poor and we're deaf and we're dumb and we're blind and we're naked and we don't even know it. We've adopted the theme of this age. And the theme of this age is hard for a Christian to live in because at any turn they're telling you not to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow him, but they're telling you to encourage yourself. This has even happened within the church. We're told to love the Lord our, our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. But the psychologists today within the church have developed a new slogan, and that's a new commandment, and that's love yourself. And people say, well, aren't I supposed to love myself to love my neighbor? In part, that is true, but the emphasis is not on yourself. The emphasis is on loving your neighbor. And we are so preoccupied with ourselves that we have forgotten to care for our neighbor. The thing that Kim and I have realized in our life, the one thing that brought us to the Lord uh, was through a tragedy, was through the loss of our own, uh, our own dads. I don't know if some of you have experienced the loss of a relationship or the loss of a loved one. Uh, my wife lost her father uh, seven years ago, is it, honey? Now seven years ago, eight years ago, uh, in a plane crash. He was flying and his uh, wings caught the top of a tree and he went spiraling into the ground. She was 17, and I lost my dad also when I was 17. I was holding my father when he died. I was getting ready to, to go to school, and, and my dad, I heard something fall downstairs, and I ran down, and my younger brother Bob and I were there, and we ran over to him, and I, I tried to revive him uh, at all. And uh, the doctor came and said, Steve, I'm sorry, he's home with the Lord. And I thought about that for a minute, and I thought, should we ever be sorry that someone is home with Jesus? I miss him terribly. Don't misunderstand. I sorrow greatly and it's difficult some days, even now after all these years. But I'll never remember the last thing my dad told me before he went home to be with the Lord. He said, Steve, Jesus will never be all that you need until Jesus is all that you've got. Barren is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. Are we willing to trust in the Lord? Or are we putting our trust in ourselves to save ourselves? Last but not least, Jeremiah 48, verse 10. Not only barren is the man who disobeys the word of God, and barren is the man who distrusts the will of God, but Jeremiah 48, 10, barren is the man that deceitfully does the work of God. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. And cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. As Dr. MacArthur was preaching yesterday at church, I couldn't help but be reminded of this verse and also of the scandalous activities that we've seen with investors and pulpiteers and politicians over the last three or four years. We no longer are given to absolute, but we live in a moral pluralistic society. No longer is there absolutes if people don't like the family as one man, one woman with children. They simply want to redefine the family as President Jimmy Carter did in 1976. Where Carter, when he was pressed by different political action groups on remaining tight with the family identity, one man, one woman with children from different groups outside of the church, some even within the liberal element of the church, 
pressed him hard enough to change the definition of family singular to families plural. Because they said this is a very archaic definition of what a family is supposed to be. We think a family should be any two caring people living in any kind of relationship, regardless whether they have children. By the way, they also included that to say if a 50-year-old man wanted to live with a 10-year-old boy and abuse him, that also is a family relationship. And President Carter, I know he's a Christian man, but I don't know why he gave in to this. But he changed the name to the Conference on the Families, plural. We are redefining what was once black and white is now turning into indefinite gray. And the Lord is very clear here in Jeremiah 48.10. Barren is the one who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. Have we been deceitful in our practice? And I know our minds have to go to the scandals of late of people in front of people. But are you responsible here at the college for a few people? Do you teach a Sunday school class? Do you have a younger brother and sister? Are you being Christ-like in your example to them? I know all of you here are extremely Bible literate. You, you can quote this thing up and back and side and down, but has it gotten into your heart? Are you living the truth daily? Have we done God's work deceitfully? Have we been false or untrue in our application of Scripture? Are we pretending to be one person? Man, aren't Christians, aren't we great at posing for people? You know, we pretend that nothing affects us. And, and everything is nice and squeaky on the outside, but inside we are dying and we're living secret lies of sin. Have we become barren because we've done God's work deceitfully? Are we pretending before God? God sees through all of the pretentious fronts. He sees every part of me and yet He still loves. Second Timothy 2.13, what a great promise. Even when I am unfaithful, he is faithful, for he will never disown himself. That is not a license to sin. It should be a license for obedience. Have we taken lightly the word of God? Have we been living disobedient lives to his word? Habitual, practicing disobedience. Let all who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Have we distrusted in the will of God, whether for a mate for life, whether for a job, or you may be a senior getting ready to graduate this spring? Are we trying to manipulate our destiny or are we completely, hopelessly and helplessly abandoned to Jesus? Have we made flesh our arm? Have we deceitfully done the work of God? I'm so tired of professional Christianity, aren't you? May we get back to a biblical Christianity once again. Man, I love the name of your school here, the Master's College. Christians, I pray that your name of your school becomes your lifestyle here. We need revival. We need to fan the flame. I would like to close with this song, Revive Us, O Lord. Maybe some of you have heard this, and I would like for you to join me on the chorus as we sing. Revive us, O Lord. And maybe think in your own heart, have you been disobedient to the Lord? Have you been away from God? Has your heart been hard-hearted towards Him? Have you been living a secret life of deceitfulness, and no one else sees it except in the idle moments of the privacy of your own day? We've turned from your ways, Lord, your fruit we cease to bear. 
lack the power that we once knew in our prayers. That gentle voice of heaven always sees to hear and know. The fact that He has risen no longer stirs our soul. Revive us, O Lord. Revive us, O Cleanse us from our impurity and cleanse us from our impurities and make us holy. Hear our cry and revive us, O Lord both in the temple and in their own houses, eating their bread with gladness of heart. Only let the Lord show Himself in great blessing, then He alone is exalted. Behold, His enemies fly before Him because of His grace. So, brethren, will it not even be so that in that day of which we are reading just now with so much delight, when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalted on the top of the mountains and all nations shall flow into it, there is to come a day when Christ shall be known and loved of every land. You will hear no more of that name of the Pope, of the Patriarch, of the great religious leader receiving the chief honor. No great name set in the front of a section of the church shall be shouted in that day. The Lord alone shall be exalted. Revival is what we learn through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 times of great refreshing before the Lord. Times of great refreshing before the Lord. We've talked about the background of revival, the burden of revival, which is prayer, the barriers to revival, disobedience to the Word of God, distrusting the will of God, and deceitfully doing the work of God. But when comes the breakthrough? When do we see revival poured out on our campus, on our country, on our homes? Some of you have come to me this week wondering if revival simply will be a great emotional outpouring of people. The answer is no. I know in Finney's day, the Finney-esque beliefs believe that there must be this working up of an emotional high pitch in order to come to a place of real brokenness before the Lord. But revival is not something by human means that can be worked up. We cannot manipulate a holy God. We cannot demand anything before God. We must come as Isaiah, stretched out on our bellies before Him, saying, Lord, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We must feel the hot coals off the altar of a living God cauterize that sin in our lives. We cannot simply manipulate God. This is a sovereign act of His will and is not conjured up by emotional. It's not happening through a, uh, a group of people just given over to many tears and understand something and hear me clear. 
that when a person is deeply convicted of their sin and is freed from that and is brought back to the Lord, that sometimes with tears of gladness or through tears of sorrow, that will happen, correct? But it is not through the emotions that conviction of sin is brought forth or the conversion of life or the confession of faith. It is through God's holy purpose, predestined, foreknown in His mind and His heart alone. Revival, therefore, is not something emotional in our lives but can affect our emotions, but it is done through active obedience to Jesus Christ. Do you remember the, whole, the old hymn, Trust and Obey? For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Revival. But the breakthrough of revival, I was reminded by an old preacher, Vance Havner, who went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, but I remember him speaking on this passage in three wonderful little points. And if you have your Bible, if you want to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. This is the hardest congregation any preacher's had a chance to speak in front of. It's a valley of dry bones. He's looking out over a hillside of buckets of Kentucky fried chicken wings. How would you like that for your first congregation? <laughs> Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. We just have a few moments to cover this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there was very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. Again, all of this was to glorify God. The Lord, all of it was to bring honor to him, exalting no one else but the Lord himself. Verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. When I was growing up, my mom used to tell me as I used to I used to have a band out of high school. And we used to play old Larry Norman songs. Some of his calm songs like, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Some of these nice worship choruses that I grew up with. And we used to be in the basement playing, and my mom used to come down and say, What are you going to turn off that noise? I said, Mom, this is beautiful music. She goes, Well, it sounds like noise to me. There are two kinds of noise in Scripture. Amos 5, 21-25. There is a noise of melodies to the Lord because the people's hearts were not right. And I firmly believe this is the state of Christian music today. Beautiful melodies, beautiful voices that can scale the octaves like you've never heard. But it's noise to the ears of a holy God if our hearts are not right with Him. I'm depressed over Christian music today because it is no longer Christ-centered, God-conceived, and Spirit-controlled. It is noise. It is music that wants to sing Jimmy Loves Marianne before singing about Jesus. 
Let me tell you something, folks. If we're, gonna just, if we're just gonna sing love songs, I'd rather listen to Stevie Wonder. Because he'll sing it better than any Christian trying to cross over. But we need to sing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly. I have a friend of mine in secular music. I won't mention his name. You would all know him here. He's part of a very successful group that has sold millions of records. He came to the recording studio one day and I said, how are you doing? He says, good. He said, Steve, I don't like Christian music. And I thought immediately, oh Lord, this is great. I'm going to have a chance to witness to somebody. You know? And I said, what don't you like about Christian music? He says, the thing I don't like about Christian music is, is that when I'm done listening to it, I don't know who Jesus is. He said, when I sing about women and sex and drugs and rock and roll, he said, I don't compromise it. I put it on the table and if people don't like it, tough patukas. It's their problem. But he said, why is it that I am more sold out to my sin than the average Christian is to their God? Noise. There's a noise that Amos talks about. The Lord says, take away, I will not acknowledge your feast days or your festivals. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melodies of your string instruments. Why? Because their hearts were not right with the Holy God. We sang two beautiful worship songs, Holy, Holy, Holy. Beautiful. One of the great hymns of our church. And O come all ye faithful, faithful people. But it's noise to the ears of a holy God if we are not living right before Him. Second type of noise is here, that coming back together. I was commanded as I prophesied, verse 7, there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Three things pop out of this passage. Number one, bones. Number two, body. Number three, breath. Bones, the structure of what we are about, the skeleton by which we live, the framework by which we gear our lives. The body of a large group of people the body of a group that makes up the body of Christ. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we have the bones of great organization. In fact, we're so organized and computerized and mechanized in the church. Uh, as Raven Hill says, if the Holy Spirit was, were to be withdrawn from us, would we think it's uh, no difference in our worship at all? Do most of us, in other words, live our lives like it's 1990 B.C.? As if though Christ has never come. We have the bones of good organization. We have the body of a large group of people. Never before have so many people flocked to hear about Jesus Christ. Packed concerts halls, packed churches, but low spirituality. With all of our numbers and with all of our body and with all of our organization, with all of our bones, we come to verse 8. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. We can have the bones of good organization, the body of a large membership, but if we don't have the breath of the Holy Spirit blowing through us, we are a bunch of corpses. We are dead. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds. And as you know, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given to the, to the church, there was the sound of a great and mighty rushing wind. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they came to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. Breakthrough. The breath of the Holy Spirit. The exalting of our Lord Jesus Christ for him and him alone. That is revival. Do you hate sin? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all you have? 
Do you love the brethren? Do you have a desire for His Word? Are you willing to forget all else in order to be obedient to Christ? Is He more important than any other love in your life? Are you organized? Do you have your career mapped out? Do you have your plans set and the body, the capabilities, the talents that God has given you to do it? But are we a corpse because we have not yielded ourselves to a holy God and therefore the breath of the Holy Spirit has ceased to blow through our lives? Are we dead? Have we lost the heavenly tune? As David says in Psalm 119.54, Thy statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. A heavenly song. Second Chronicles 29.27 says that the song of the Lord does not begin until the sacrifice is on the altar. And as we talked about on Friday and Monday, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. We know the notes of the music, but do we know the tune? We've got it right theologically, but are we living the Christian life? Is there that breakthrough of revival in our hearts? Lord, fan the flame in me. Were we once boiling hot for the Lord, but we've bought the Laodicean line and become lukewarm, a member of the Church of the Spiritual Spitwats, ready to be spit out of the mouth of a holy God? Have those once flames that were kindled in burning desire for the Lord now through the cooling of our own lusts, our own passions, our own desires, become now a dying ember. Bones, body, and breath. Are we willing to live holy lives to be being filled with the Holy Spirit of our God? Let's pray together.